Lord Jesus, um, just come and, and lay myself at your feet, Lord. Um, Lord, as today, just you've given not only me, but the elders of this church, you've given us uh, a message to share, Lord, that you've put on each of our heart and, uh, and, and caused it to be like a burning ember into our soul of where you desire our church to be going, Lord, and, uh, and where you desire churches to be going, God. Uh, Lord, some of it not easy to hear. Lord, honestly, not easy to, to say. And so, Lord, I just, uh, I step aside right now, and Lord, I just pray that it would be you speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, not with wisdom of words would these men and women be persuaded, but by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. Lord, you know how America has just kind of watered down truth and, uh, and how, how perhaps we've fallen into that. Lord, we've offered explanations for scripture that's really just opinion. And Lord, if we just read it and, and let you change us by it, Lord, we'd probably look different than we do today. And so, Lord, let your word be authority today. We know you've been doing that, Lord, and challenging us in, in marriages and challenging us in sexual purity, Lord, and, and things along those lines that are difficult to discuss. And, and so, Lord, do it today in regards to our discipleship and, uh, and where you would have our church go in 2013. Uh, Lord, just get, we give it to you right now, Jesus. Just minister to us, speak to us, uh, convict us. Lord, bring us to repentance today. Let there be a change in our ministries and in our body uh, after this Sunday for your glory, for the furtherance of your great name. You're worthy of it. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, I want to ask the question this morning, where do you find comfort that you are saved from hell? Okay. I want you to savor that, chew on that, think about it. Where do you find comfort that you are saved from hell? Maybe you're kind of over on, on this side, and in this camp. You believe. You believe. Come on. You believe that Jesus existed as a person. Man, he was over there in Bethlehem. You can find his, his little birth spot, you know. It's a little star on a ground, on a plaque over there. He existed. He came as God in the flesh. I believe that. I believe that the words that Jesus said are true words. You know the words that Jesus said, and you assent to those words. You agree with those words. You would nod your head if he was preaching a message. You were illuminated. You prayed the sinner's prayer at church. You repeated word for word what the pastor or the evangelist said. You went down front at a revival or a meeting or a youth camp. Perhaps a very famous one. Acquire the Fire, Billy Graham Crusade, Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusade. And that's what I put my stock in, that I'm saved from hell. I believe in the man. After all, Acts chapter 16, Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans chapter 10, you know, if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the 
heart one believes and with the mouth one confesses unto righteousness and, and yeah, believe, confess. Goodbye. Done deal. But from that point on, the life that you live, it doesn't matter. I believed. Good to go. Can do what I want now. I've secured eternal salvation so I can just live the way that I want, believe the things that I want, do what I want to do. That's up to me. I've received grace and now it's my life to live. A few problems. James chapter 2 verse 19. You believe that there's one God. You do well. But even the demons believe that. And they tremble. Or James chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. You'd be deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror and he leaves and immediately forgets what he looked like. Or 1 John, if we say that we have fellowship with Jesus, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Or he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. Which kind of brings us to this end of the spectrum. All right, I totally believe over on this side. I believe Jesus was real. You know, he died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for everybody's sins. But now, I just do what I want to do. And then over on this end, you've got perhaps the opposite. Man, I strive to keep the commandments. I have no use for Christian liberties. They only are gray areas that tempt you to sin. I'm involved in ministry. I attend every Bible study this church has, every discipleship group, every retreat. I homeschool my kids. I only listen to Caleb. I support and attend missionary work. Heck, I've even worked miracles before. But I still live and do things the way that I want, too. It happens on this end, too. It happens on this end, too. Some problems... Problem passages, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And Jesus will declare to this certain group of people, away from me, I never knew you, depart you're actually a worker of lawlessness. The rich young ruler in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19 would be in this camp. He, he's kind of the quintessential yuppie, all right? He, he's really the American man. He's rich. You're rich. Yeah, you are. You're rich. The rest of the world, they live on $2 a day, not what you live on. You're rich. Some of you not so young, but... Skip over that part. No offense. Okay. All right. And this rich young ruler, when he comes to Jesus, we're going to study it in a little bit. He says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus kind of tests him and says, hey, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done that. 
and I still have a problem in here. I'm not good with that. There's something else. And I'm, so I'm still, I have to ask the question, I do that, what do I still need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, go sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, take up your cross, and follow me. And the dude turns around sad because he's not gonna do it. He's not gonna do it. He keeps all the commandments. He's done that from his youth. Does that guy have assurance of salvation? Does that guy have a hope that he can hang his hat on, that he's saved? He turned away from what Jesus called him to do. The rich young ruler, kind of in this camp over here. We've been called at Calvary Chapel as Christians to make disciples and to make disciples of all nations. To be disciples, to make disciples. A disciple is a follower. It's a learner. It's a follower of a teacher. And I want to ask you today, are you a disciple? Or for all you ladies, a disciplet. You want to know today, well, Rory, preacher man, how close do I need to be to Jesus and still be called a disciple? How far away? Away from that that crazy language that Jesus uses, can I be to still be a disciple? There's Jesus, and here's me, and I don't really want to go that far. I don't want to go this far. How? Just be real with me. Tell me what to do, okay? Tell me what to do. Well, it's no use taking refuge in abstract discussion or trying to make excuses. So today we want to get back to the scripture, to the word of God, and to Jesus Christ himself. Okay? Forget everything you've ever learned. We're going to the word today, and we're going to respond to it. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, whistling the Andy Griffith song. It's in there. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now Luke's gospel tells us that James and John were there with him. They were the sons of Zebedee, and it says they were partners with Simon. So there's like a business partnership going on. And Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. And so it says in Matthew 4.20, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, saw James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and then here we have it again, verse 20 and 22, very similar, immediately, They left the boat and their father and followed him. When the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it is proclaiming a discipleship that is going to liberate mankind from all man-made dogmas, 
from every burden, from oppression, from every anxiety, from torture that afflicts the conscience. If men will follow Jesus, they escape the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kindly yoke of Jesus Christ. A man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that. A man who some 60 years ago chose to make disciples and to be a disciple rather than easy freedom and he ended up being killed by Nazi SS black guards a couple days before his concentration camp was liberated. Okay? And he is basically telling us that true freedom, true freedom, true freedom from oppression, true freedom from a yoke of legalism and dogma that the churches have placed on us, true freedom is actually found in giving it up in laying our lives down, in laying everything that we've ever been comfortable in, and owned, and and loved. And And he just says, hey, be willing to give it up. The disciples immediately dropped it, left it, said goodbye, followed him. The call from Jesus is at once followed by a response of obedience. These guys left their family. They left their business. They left their means of income. How quick was the call of heeding Jesus? It was immediate. Was there a long process of sanctification that was drawn out that finally they came around to getting out of their boats and following Jesus? How long was that process? It was immediate. You read it yourself. It was immediate. The book of Hebrews says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. These guys, by the grace of God, had a call to discipleship. That call moved them to obedience. And we see that faith was going to follow. Faith was going to follow as they were hanging out with Jesus. Later on in the book of Matthew, in chapter 8, we have these incidents that take place that are illustrative of our discipleship. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus is, is going and he sees great multitudes around him. He gives a command to depart to the other side and a certain scribe comes and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus doesn't call this guy. This guy comes to him and says, I'm in. I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So this guy, this this scribe, he's been called the rash disciple or the hasty disciple. Someone that just feels impulse to say, I want to follow you. Perhaps it was something that Jesus did, something Jesus said, some miracle that really got him really excited and pumped up, man. Just, oh, I I totally want to follow you. And Jesus just says, hey, you really don't know what you're volunteering for. I don't have a downy soft pillow to lay my head down at night. I don't have a home. It's not what I have. And he just, he, he challenges this guy. He says, foxes, they've got their dens. Birds, they've got their nests. But I need to depend upon the hospitality of others and burrow my head onto a pillow that's been lent by somebody else. 
His reply challenged this hasty disciple. The individuals that he's going to say, or the things that he's going to say to each individual, whether it's the rich young ruler, whether it's this disciple, whether it's Peter, James, and John, it's not the same for each person, but he, in his divinity, he knows exactly where to put his finger on people's hearts that's going to cause them to go, oh, 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 uh Apparently this guy liked Tempur-Pedic mattresses and things like that, you know. He said, hey, if you're going to follow me, I just want you to know, you're not going to have a pillow. You're not going to have a bed. You're not, you are not going to have a home. He says that to this man. It's different for the next man. The next guy in... Uh, Apologize. Uh, the next guy is called the procrastinating or the entangled disciple. Uh, in verse 21, it says, another disciple says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So Jesus, Luke's gospel tells us, Jesus said to this guy, follow me. He says, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. And Luke's gospel goes a little further and says, but you go preach the kingdom of God. Now, this guy didn't volunteer his services. Jesus actually said to him, I want you to follow me. And not only to follow, but to preach me. Now, this guy seems to be quite willing, but he's just not ready yet. He says, Lord, I will, but... There's a difficulty in the way just now. I'm, I'm almost there. But I got some things. I got some stuff to do. Now... A lot of pastors, and you guys have heard this sermon probably preached, where, well, you know, the guy's, his dad wasn't like laying there dead. I mean, like, of course Jesus would let him go bury his dad. Come on. I mean, what probably is happening is, you know, this guy's like, hey, my dad's like 45, you know, and, you know, let me just help dad out and just follow him till he's finally dead. And then once that, you know, then I'll follow. Maybe, maybe. But one preacher that I very, I very much respect, said, I've read the commentators. I think they're trying to make Jesus out to be nicer than the statement really is. I think the father is dead. And Jesus, in a dramatic, nerve-jangling, bone-chilling call, makes it perfectly clear that following Christ is such an urgent matter that even the most intimate family responsibilities must be given second place when the call to follow him comes. Now, it would be wrong for us to force the teaching that believers must never provide for their families' funerals or, or anything like that, okay? But the dealio is, Jesus is putting his finger right in people's button that they need to choose to count the cost. It's different for you, it's different for me, it's different for these people. And it's Jesus who knows right where to put it. And even right now, your button is being pushed. You don't really have a care about who you're going to go bury right now, but there's other things in your life that you're kind of, mm -mm. my fishing boat with my nets, not going to drop them. My Tempur-Pedic mattress with my cushy, cushy pillow that replaces its foam every day. It comes right, pops right back up. Not going to happen. Okay. What if Jesus asked you that? What if? The real issue here is to follow Jesus Christ demands a cost. 
You cannot get away from that in the New Testament. And we have that in our own culture. If you go to sign up for the Marines right now, you're understanding that, that you might not get Christmas holiday off, all right? Or your wife might be with child and you're not going to be able to get back overseas and to be with her during the birth. You're giving up certain rights that you have for the sake of your king, for the sake of your country. And every family member of the CIA or the FBI or, or the Navy SEALs, they know that someday they might get a letter stamped from their husband or stamped from their mother, whoever it might be, that says, hey, so-and-so was killed in combat, killed in action, killed. We can't tell you where they are, where they're buried, nothing like that. Uh, we appreciate your service to our country. Okay? We know that our country and our king will make demands upon us like that. And many even in this room, you signed on the dotted line and said, I'm in, doesn't matter. America, red, white, and blue. Statue of Liberty and all that good stuff. What about Jesus? What about what he is calling you to do? That you know, you know what he's calling you to do. A third incident that's in the same passage, it's the same time frame. We don't have it in Matthew, but we have it in Luke. And it's another disciple who's indecisive. He's wavering as a disciple. In Luke 9, 61, another says, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus says to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The disciple's a volunteer, just like the first disciple. He's willing, but there's something in the way at the moment. This man's discipleship was not thorough. He hadn't been separated from the world in, in, in a way that's shown because he's looking back to the world. He's missing the world. He's wanting the world. Jesus says in a warning, hey, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. You guys remember in Genesis, right? Lot's wife, she's fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and she's told, don't even look back. Just keep going. Run out of there. Forsake the world. Forsake all that it has for you. Forsake the pleasures that, are, that lead to death. And as she's running, she wasn't a thorough disciple. And she looks back and immediately she's turned into a pillar of salt. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he says, suffer me first or permit me this, is what the disciple said. He wants to follow, but he feels obliged to insist on his own terms. Discipleship to him is a possibility which can only be realized when certain conditions have been fulfilled. This is to reduce discipleship to the level of human understanding. How are we doing this? How are you doing that right now? Right now, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm where you're at. I've been where you're at. I'm really where you're at. <laughs> Studying this, looking at it, letting the scriptures speak for themselves, reading men and, and disregarding what certain men have to say because it's, it's compromising or it's unbiblical and saying, Rory, you're being challenged right now. And I say, permit me this, Lord. Permit me this. Just let me have this and I'll follow you. And this and this and her and, and that and we and them and this, that. It's fast. I want it. Okay? Permit me this, Lord. It's insisting our own terms be coupled to discipleship. The figure that Jesus gives us here of putting one hand to the plow and looking back is a very vivid picture. To agricultural people, we understand it. 
We know that plowing requires an eye that's intent on the furrow to be made. And the minute you look away, that furrow is marred. The windrow swerves. And I remember just spending hours and hours on a tractor as a teenager, you know, and I mean, you get bored, right? So you start writing your name in the field. With, no, you don't do that. But, you know, you're, you're following and you keep your eye right on the corner, right on the corner of the header, you know, and you're making your windrows and you're keeping your eye, keeping your eye. And then you decide to switch radio stations or mess with the air conditioner or something like that. Or what do the windrows look like from behind? Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, and a little wiggle shifts directions, shifts course. The instant we turn about, and as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said a century ago, so they will come short of salvation who prosecute the work of God with a distracted intention, a divided heart. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 19, you can flip there if you're fast. 1 Kings 19, 19. You have Elijah, right after he's totally depressed, after he had a radical victory on Mount Carmel, And the Lord ministers to him in his depression and says, all right, buddy, get up, dust yourself off. It's time to go. I've got work for you to do. So he departs and he finds Elisha, the son of Shaphat, plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he's with the 12th. Then Elijah passes by him and throws his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back to him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. And so Elijah's out in the field on the John Deere, plowing away. Some crazy dude with a beard thinks he can do anything he wants, comes out onto his property and throws his robe on him. Culturally, biblically, it meant, hey, I'm, I'm passing on my mission to you. Let's go. And he says, hey, hold on. Let me just go back. Let me kiss my mother and father. Let me have my parting words. And he says, hey, what did I do to you? He knows what he did. He's called him to a radical discipleship. And he's actually permitted to go back and to kiss his family, say goodbye. And then he slaughters his oxen and the oxen's implements and offers them as a sacrifice there. Beautiful things that are taking place. This guy, Elijah, had a different heart set than the dude we read in Luke chapter 9. It was okay for him to go because it wasn't going to compromise the call of God to be a disciple for him. He could go back. It was a different call for that guy than it was for Elijah. He could go back. And what did he do when he did go back? He killed everything that was going to be a hindrance and a deterrent to his discipleship. He took the John Deere tractor and he blew it up. Okay? Adam, application there. I want you to make it. Okay, Farmer Bob over there. It's similar to this. In 1519... Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez landed in Mexico on the shores of the Yucatan with one objective, seize the great treasures known to be there hoarded by the Aztecs. He was a very gifted, convincing orator. He was able to lead 500 soldiers and 100 sailors on 11 ships across the Atlantic. 
And when they landed on the shores, he gathered all the men together for one last big speech before they headed out to conquer. And just at the crescendo of his speech, he yelled out, and burn the ships! And everyone's like, ah, wait, wait, hold on now. Hold on, what? Do the what now? (laughs) Burn the ships. Light them on fire. Make ash heaps out of them. He said, either we win this campaign or we die. If we go home, we go home in their ships. What it did was it raised the commitment level of these soldiers and sailors to a whole new level. They had nowhere to fall back to. Elisha's doing this proved that with safety he could go back. But the Lord's warning for this disciple against bidding their farewell knew that there would be fatal consequences to him going back home. Alistair Begg says genuine Christian discipleship gives no room for excuses, no room for compromise, no room for half-heartedness. No room for letting the thought of doing something radical for God replace the action of actually doing something radical for God. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we read that Jesus passes on from there and he sees a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office and he says to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So another disciple is called. He's a a tax dude. Works for the IRS. He makes bank. He makes moolah. People hated him because he made so much money. They considered him to be a crook and a traitor to the country. And Jesus comes by and just says, follow me. And because he's the son of God, he gets to do things like that. Just say, follow me. And what does Matthew or Levi do? And how soon does he do it? Immediately. He gets up from his desk. He rolls his chair back. And he stands up. And he follows after Jesus. Because it's Jesus who calls. Jesus is worthy of an immediate stand-up and following of him. Matthew chapter 10. Just kind of working our way through Matthew here. Jesus calls his 12 disciples to them. He gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all kinds of diseases and and, uh, all kinds of sicknesses. You have the names of all the disciples. You have uh, kind of the task and the method that they're to go out financially and fundraising and all of that good stuff. He tells them not to worry in verse 19 about what they're to speak. God's going to speak. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to speak in you. And then in verse 21 of chapter 10, we see some of what the cost of discipleship means. He says, brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus tells the disciples that there will be deep hostility In the old nature to the life of the new, he says in the same way that Belial, the chief of demons, is hostile to Christ. And this is an issue that just wrenches the dearest ties that we have in our life, in the lives of the disciples, that causes family rifts, rifts upon society. They were to be prepared for the worst.
Jesus was told once when he was in a house, like, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. And he just says, hey, who are my mom and my brothers? Who are they? It's the people that do the will of my Father in heaven. You guys are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. That's what Jesus said. Doesn't seem very nice. Doesn't win points with mom sometimes to say things like that. But Jesus says the ties are different when you're a disciple. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. He says in verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. He says in the same chapter as he's sending out the disciples in verse 34, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those in his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying as he sends out his disciple is there will be cost. There will be cost. Will there, will there be blessings? Will there be radical joy? Absolutely. It's a message of hope that we're bringing to the world that God loves us. God loves the world so much that he gave his only son. There's redemption. There's paradise. There's inheritance. There's hope. But he who loses his life will gain that hope. He who finds his life will lose it. If anyone, Matthew says in chapter 16, desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. 16.24 and 25, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark and Luke add to this message of Jesus, if you're ashamed of me and my words, if you're ashamed to belonging to me and ashamed of my gospel, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We've read a few times Luke's gospel in chapter 14 is almost more severe language that if you don't take up your cross and follow Jesus, you can't be his disciple. If you don't count the cost of following, you can't be the disciple. Just like if the contractor's building a tower and he doesn't do the calculations to what it's going to cost, he's going to build half a tower and he's going to look like an idiot doing it. If a man's going to war against the enemy and he doesn't count the cost of how many men it's going to take to defeat, man, if you don't have enough men, you just say, hey, we got to come to terms of peace here. you got to count the cost. And there is a cost to discipleship. Some of it is laid out clearly in Scripture. Let anyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Some of it's specifically to you 
as the Lord had specific instructions to specific disciples, as you're at the feet of Jesus, you're going to know. You're going to know what he's calling you to give up and to leave. You'll know. I'm not putting anything on you. There's things that are put on us that Jesus puts on us. Then there's things the Holy Spirit will place on you. We're to take up our cross and to follow him. And sadly in our culture, we use the term, oh, it's just my cross to bear. It's become a worldly cliche, this ringing in my ears or this arthritis or these flat feet. You know, I can't play basketball. It's my cross to bear. The cross meant death. It meant humiliating execution. It meant you hanging there rotting while you suffocated to death then had your legs broken. It meant you defecating all over yourself in public while you were naked in front of everybody. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he says it's not going to be easy to be a disciple. And the American church has turned to easy believism. Whatever, man, you said the sinner's prayer. Whatever. 30 years ago, said the sinner's prayer. There's been no fruit of the Spirit in your life. There's been no obedience to the call of being a disciple. Have you taken up your cross? Discipleship where we have a suffering savior, means that there will be suffering disciples. We just read it. A disciple is not above his master. There's a certain missionary organization who when it sends out missionaries, they send out their belongings to the country they're going to in a casket. They pack their casket and they send it to where they're going. What do you think that means? They're planning on dying. And as they go, they write a letter to their family that's to be read at their funeral. I think that's a practice that would be very beneficial for all of us to do this afternoon. Writing a letter to our kids, to our wife, upon the off chance that we would be martyred for Christ, it would be read. What would it say? It would say, I'm prepared to lose my life. I'm prepared to take up my cross. These words of Jesus remove all hope of continuing on in cheap grace or easy believism. Say the sinner's prayer. Believe in Jesus Christ. You'll have eternal life regardless of what your life looks like afterward. Despite the fact that your life looks exactly the way it did before you assented to a knowledge of the truth. It's called cheap grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Grace without price. Grace without cost. Later on, he'll say, it's turned out to be utterly merciless in our evangelical church. And the word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. We're fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace merely as a doctrine or a principle or a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as a Christian conception of God, and an intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner, that that is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. 
Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring repentance, a call to baptism, without church discipline, communion, or confession, absolution, or personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man his only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. We've been studying in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Cheap grace. We want to battle it in this church. We want to come to the scriptures. And on this end, say, hey, what do the scriptures say? And over here, what do the scriptures say? We're not calling to legalism. We're calling to A faith that saves is not a faith alone. We are saved by grace through the conduit of faith, which works itself out in works. And James will challenge us with that. James will kind of push us out of our comfort zone a little bit when he says, don't you know that Abraham, when he offered up his son Isaac, was justified by works? And not by faith alone. Whoa, James! What are you doing? Not contradicting Romans is what he's doing. Because the faith that saves is not alone. It will evidence itself by discipleship. It will evidence itself by us counting the cost and following Jesus. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the one who's left all to follow Christ. Such a man knows that the call discipleship is a gift of grace and that the call is inseparable from the grace. But those who try to use this grace as a dispensation from following Christ are simply deceiving themselves. The rich young ruler came running to the feet of Jesus. Do you know he did that? Do you know Mark's gospel says he ran and threw himself down at the feet of Jesus and said, good teacher, talking to a rabbi here, tell me, rabbi, what must I do to secure inherent eternal life? And Jesus says, first of all, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And that made the, this rich young ruler go, burka, burka. I'm not talking to a rabbi. I'm talking to the son of God. Oh gosh, no backing out now. I'm already at his feet. And so he says, if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Jesus lists off six things that are commandments against our fellow man or in regard to our fellow man. Finally, Jesus closing it with, and love your neighbor as yourself, which we know is one of the fulfillments of the law. And he says, hey, all these things I've done from my youth. And he could have said, okay, I'm good to go. Well, see you later. 
he didn't. He said, man, I'm still lacking something. He felt something more was needed. And Jesus says, hey, if you want to be perfect, here it is. It's going to cost. It's going to cost. Sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. With this guy, it's different for you, but it might be the same for you, okay? With this guy, riches were his idol and the Lord knew it from the first time he saw him. Riches were his idol. He may have been able to go away and say, not gonna sell it, not gonna sell it, but I still love you, Lord, I still like you. Still like you. And maybe he'd still be saved. But there'd be no lordship. No lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it says Mark's gospel, that when he saw this guy, he loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go sell all that you got, give it to the poor. And then he, Mark's gospel says, he says this, and take up your cross and follow me. Get ready, rich boy, because it's going to cost you. Take up your cross and follow me. And when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Philip's translation, when he heard this, he turned away crestfallen, because he was very wealthy. He had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I'm saying to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. Mark's gospel says, he said it again. Hey, children, I'm telling you. Are you listening again? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go to the, through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and but the Lord just says, hey, that's, that's for men. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And real quickly, when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who can be saved? He looked at them and said, with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Peter said, hey, look, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. Remember the whole dropping the nets thing, hopping out of the boat, following you on the beach of the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember that? And Jesus said, yeah, basically, you've got your reward. There's a reward coming for you and for everyone 1929 says, who left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother and children or lands for my name's sake, Mark's gospel says, or for the gospel's sake, he will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Salvation is free. Discipleship costs you everything. Salvation happens in a moment. But discipleship happens for the rest of your life. Salvation is something that God did for you. Discipleship is something that you do for God. There's a lot in the Gospels in in pertaining to the disciples. Their walks, their life, their humility, their serving one another. They're watching for the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the most incredibly powerful things that a disciple is to do is found in the last chapter of the book of Matthew. Let's flip there, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We have this great commission, this not suggestion, but commission for the disciples to go. They're to leave, they're to go about all of the nations, preaching the gospel to every creature, the gospel of Mark tells us. They're to make disciples, not just converts. They're to baptize them. They're to teach them everything Jesus had commanded, and they're to do it in the authority that Jesus himself was leaving them. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, the reason that the Holy Spirit is given for power to be witnesses is for the purpose of evangelizing the world, preaching the gospel to every creature, and making disciples of all nations. So the goal of the disciples is to be a disciple. See that in all the passages we've read today. Being a disciple, counting the cost, and to make disciples. And we see a bit of their methodology in the early church practices in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you flip over there, Acts 2, 42. says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and good. They divided among them, among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Something incredible that we see as these guys are counting the cost of discipleship, making disciples, being disciples, is that it created community within the church. Individualism as Christians is not something we see in the New Testament. We see that we've been saved to be part of a body, part of a flock, part of a house, each one of us. And we see that happening here, that God is breaking away from individuals, their individualism. And there, we see here, unselfishly dwelling with each other, being with each other, giving of their things. It's no longer their own private bank account, their own private money. They're giving it away. We want to follow just as closely as we can what's prescriptive in the book of Acts and what's descriptive. Don't worry, we're not right now going to go to communal living, all right? Let's just go buy a bunch of property and build some yurts and like live there together like this, all right? There's descriptions and there's prescriptions that we see, but we see a purpose in all of this in making disciples and being obedient to Jesus for the spread of his kingdom to the glory of God. And so why does our church, Calvary Chapel of Crook County, exist? It exists to bring glory to God by making disciples through consistently declaring the Christ-centered word, purposefully loving each other within Christ-centered community, and fervently evangelizing our community here in Prineville and the rest of the world. We referred to it in our church series that we did in the spring as upreach, inreach, and outreach. Everything we do is the chief end to the chief end of giving glory to God. He's so worthy of it. We minister to each other. We minister to this body. We take care of each other. We disciple each other. We build one another up. 
uh, for love and for good works and send out into outreach that we might evangelize the world and make more disciples. The true goal of a local church's life in this church in particular today is the worship of God, the edification of the church, and the evangelization of the world to the glory of God. And so we have a few things that the Lord has been leading us as leaders, as elders, as pastors, as overseers, as bishops, however you want to call us, that God's been leading us in methodology that we might, to the best way we can, be disciples and make disciples and evangelize the world where we're at today. How are we going to do that? We've had to look at our schedules. We've had to look at our events. We've had to look at what we've been having going on during the week and say, okay, so what is important? How do we do this? And there's, th- uh, let's see here. I should have written it down in number form. Four big things. <laughs> four big things. I've never actually counted them out. It's like, oh, yeah, there's actually four. Okay. Four big things that we believe that God has given us to do this, okay? And the first thing is Sunday morning gathering, all right? Sunday morning gathering. We meet on a Sunday because after the resurrection, all the disciples of Jesus met on a Sunday. That's why we meet on a Sunday, okay? And the purpose of of meeting on a Sunday is to make disciples, okay? That's our purpose. To be taught the Holy Scriptures and to be taught doctrine, in a way that you wouldn't be taught in other places. Our broad range of people that come in on a Sunday morning give us an opportunity to preach the gospel and to evangelize while also giving the the meat of the word to people. Here on a Sunday morning, we worship together in song and in prayer. It's here on Sunday that we partake of communion and baptism. And we do it all corporately. And that's the thing. We want to be disciples and make disciples on a Sunday morning. We do it corporately together. Why? Because he tells us to do this. It's not some strategy that we've come up up with and making it up ourselves and pulling it out of our pockets and slapping it on the table. No, we're told to do this. In many different passages in scripture, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, some are made apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers so that the saints can be equipped for the work of of the ministry so that you all here could be equipped to do ministry. It's not the full-time paid staff at the church's job to do the ministry. My job is to equip you all to do ministry. I do do ministry, and that's also a biblical thing, but I'm not the only one. I'm to equip you all to do ministry, and the elders are to equip you all, and the evangelists and the apostles and the prophets as well, so that the church might be edified, So that we would all come to the unity of the faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God. That we wouldn't be immature people tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But that we might be solid and firm and stable in the foundation that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay? There's a a maturity that's to happen in the body of Christ. And the, the gathering together corporately affords this maturity to take place. Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. And in that, he's to convince, he's to rebuke, he's to exhort with long-suffering and teaching. That means that not every message is going to tickle your ears. That means not every, some messages you're going to be rebuked, you're going to be corrected, you're going to be spurred on, you're going to be comforted, you're going to be encouraged, you're going to find hope and love. You are. 
All of that is involved. But when Paul tells Timothy that, he tells Timothy, I just want you to know the time is going to come when people won't endure sound doctrine. They're going to just follow after their own desires. They're going to have itching ears. They're going to heap up for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. So Timothy, as you're preaching the word of God, be watchful in everything. Be watchful in everything. Hebrews tells us we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're not to neglect these corporate gathering times. And he says it's the manner of some people, but you don't do it. Exhort one another and do it even more as you know Jesus is coming. Now, most of the things that we've read, they're for the church. We're going to be evangelistic to the world here on a Sunday morning. People come in. They don't know Jesus. We're going to give them Jesus. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about redemption. But the bulk of evangelism is not on the Sunday morning preacher. The bulk of evangelism lays on you as the Christian. And we want to equip you to be able to go out and do that. Okay? So part of all of this methodology in being disciples and making disciples leads us to the next thing. Okay? which is 242 home groups, all right? 242 home groups. When do we meet? We meet every other Sunday afternoon this year. Every other Sunday afternoon into the evenings, we're going to meet the second and fourth Sunday of the month, month 242, okay? Just to help you kind of remember it, all right? The purpose of these home groups is to make disciples, okay? That's the purpose, And we do these home groups in obedience to the word of God and the example that's set forth in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And we trust that what he says will happen will happen when we gather this way. As the end of verse uh, 47 in Acts chapter 2 says, many were added to the church. A great number of people were saved. And as we gather in this way, we grow in community with each other. We share life experiences with each other, uh, with the, the young people, with the old, the old to the young, all alike. This might be what Acts 2.42 would refer to as the breaking of bread from house to house. And something that we see a bit different this year is that we don't have a seniors ministry going on. We do, but it's not the way it's always been. The seniors ministry is going to be within these groups, okay? Uh, Within these groups where the seniors can be obedient to what the scriptures call them to do. In community, they would be doing what Titus chapter 2 says for them to do. Preaching things that are proper for sound doctrine. Showing sobriety and reverence and temperament and soundness in in speech and in love and in patience. And that the older women as well in these groups would be reverent in behavior, not slanderers and all of these things. But it says there that in these types of groups, in these settings, in this this method that, that we feel the Lord is giving us, the women will be able to admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. They'll be able to speak into these lives as we're hanging out in homes with each other, just having conversation, just talking about our life, just observing each other with our kids. Oh, honey, I've been there. I've been there. My kids used to do the same thing. And here's the scripture the Lord gave me. And here's what I've gone through. And and man, let me just speak this into your life and show this scripture into your life. And the men, the men who've held jobs for 30 years, the older men with the gray hair, they're going to be there with us in these home groups. 
We've got guys in our church, they can't hold a job for two months, one month. They have no work ethic. I have no work ethic. And I need a guy to speak into my life. Hey, son, let me speak into your life from the scriptures. Let me speak into your life from, from, from my experience. Let me speak into your life a love for country and what that should look like. Psalm 71, 18 says, When I'm old and gray-headed, O God, don't forsake me until I declare your strength in, in this generation, your power to everyone who's to come. And something we've seen in the seniors' ministry in this church, and it's our fault, it's my fault, Frank and Loretta have done a tremendous job, is that the seniors' ministry, they, they kind of are ostracized off into this community where, like, we don't talk to them, they don't talk to us, we never fellowship together, you know? And it's like, we, we need you. We need you, gray hairs. We need your experience. We need your life. And we can't do it when you're off over there. Come, come, let's all come together. We'll bring the youth in. We'll bring the middle-aged in. We'll bring the old people in. We'll fellowship together. We'll break bread together. We'll observe each other. We'll share and speak into each other's life. We'll exhort. We'll encourage each other. When I'm old and gray-headed, don't forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. Gray-headed people, we need you to declare the strength of God to this generation. The glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Hey, I've got a little strength left in me and I want to use just my vitality and my strength in your life to be serving and laying my life down for you as you'll use the wisdom and the sage advice of old age to speak into my life. We want to watch each other interacting with our family and speak into that and encourage having meals together, fellowshipping. These 242 home groups, they're not going to be like six to eight, okay? It's going to be, hey, Sunday afternoon, church is over. Maybe go home, splash your face with water, refresh a little bit, and then we're going to spend the afternoon together. We're going to go for walks together as home groups, and we're going to hang out in the backyard, and we're going to speak into each other's life. We're going to fix dinner together. We're going to be together. Have community, life on life, breaking of bread. We will get into the word. We will pray. We will have those things. We also have the core groups, which is another main thrust that we would make today in our making disciples, which is the purpose of core groups, to be disciples, to make disciples. Core groups meet throughout the week in various locations. The purpose of these is to, again, live life on life together. Men with men, women with women. And this, this is something that you don't get in a home group where it's all of us together with our kids and we can't speak into each other's life as men and hear from each other as men, hold each other accountable and sin the same way that we can with the women and with the kids around. We live life on life together. We challenge each other. We encourage each other. We hold each other accountable in being disciples and in our making disciples and evangelizing the world. Bible studies are going to be deep in the core groups, but in a way that they won't be at Sunday morning. Time to ask questions. What did Rory say? What was that all about? Hey, it's time to talk about it. Let's challenge each other. Now that you know, how are you applying it to your life? How are you living it out? I'm going to ask you next week. All right? Okay, we prayed for your coworker that's like a total jerk and needs Jesus for like six months now. Are you going to preach the gospel to him or what? Let's do this thing. Let's evangelize the world. This guy needs Jesus. Holding accountable, making disciples, evangelizing the world. Asking questions that apply 
to our life and each other's lives. We want to live in these core groups in word-saturated lives and have word-saturated conversations. We want to have intention on how we bring prayer and evangelism and holiness and purity into our businesses and into our families and into our personal lives. As Hebrews 3.13 says, we exhort one another daily in these groups. While it's called today. Can't do that if you're only at a Sunday morning. If you're only part of the big Sunday morning gathering. Okay? These are daily. These are text messages that come in regular. I mean, my core group, they're in my favorites list on my phone. Alright? There's something going on in my life. I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling with discouragement. My core group, some of the first guys to know. Pray for me right now. Hold me accountable right now. Exhort me today lest I be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That just doesn't happen here. Or there's too many. I'm going to call out Doc Kerbo. Doc Kerbo! Did you evangelize to that guy this week? No, I mean, Doc's in his core group. By the way, Doc is in a core group. Okay? And they speak to each other and they encourage each other. Notice that Jesus had multitudes following him. And then he had the 12 disciples following him. They got special instruction time, like a 242 group. And then he had a core group. Jesus had a, Jesus had a core group. Okay? <laughs> Who were they? Peter, James, and John. This, this inner group that would go and, and onto the mountaintop with Jesus, just a little bit further with Jesus, would go into the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys, you guys stay here. You guys come with me. I, I love all of you the same. I'm just structuring discipleship here. Got a leadership plan. And I'm taking these three guys with me you stay here and pray for me. I'm going to go a little further. Okay? Jesus had a core group. There it is. It's in the Bible. Okay. <clears throat> core groups. So Sunday morning, 242 home groups. Core groups. If you're not in a core group, sign up out in the foyer on your way out. Be a disciple and make disciples. Thirdly, something new that God's doing this year, something that, that he's moved in our hearts for months and actually years, a couple years, I'd say, is what's called the Equip School of Ministry. The Equip School of Ministry will meet on Wednesday nights, and the purpose of the Equip School of Ministry is what? To make disciples. Don't get tired of it. To make disciples. And to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We read of that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 17, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. All right? That they might be strong and sound in doctrine and in theology. That the church isn't wishy-washy all over the place, okay? Second Timothy commands, Paul commands Timothy, everything you've heard from me, entrust it to faithful men, that they could go teach it to faithful men, that they could go teach it to faith, faithful men, excuse me, I don't know what that was, and so on and so forth, okay? Now, the first semester of Equip School of Ministry, which begins October 9th, is that it's for those, right now, God's leading us to invest for a season in the leadership of this church, okay? We can't do everything. We could have a whole buffet of all kinds of different things to do in this church and not do any of them well, and we want to just do what we can do and do it well and equip and make sure that people are solid and strong in doctrine and in practical understanding of how to minister and how to serve so that then the Lord can move us out to have more and more faithful ministries. 
But the first semester will be that those who are currently serving in a ministry capacity, as well as are coming up as core groups or 242 home groups leaders, those will be who the first group will be being equipped. And if, that's, and if you're like, man, I just really feel a call to ministry. I'm really feeling called like I need some equipping. You can come and talk to us, all right? We're not trying to, you know, favorite club or anything like that. All right, but we want to be intentional in pouring into our leaders so that we can teach them and make sure they're good and sound and strong in doctrine and practical knowledge of ministry so that they can go out and teach faithful men, build them up, build them up, build them up, go into the world and making disciples. Okay. Now, on Wednesday night, we recently studied Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. You've got all of these different characters from the Old Testament, radical heroes of the faith, champions of the faith, soldiers, strong people, women of faith as well. Have you guys read Hebrews chapter 11? You guys know what it's about? It's like, woo, you read it, you get excited, all right? Rated PG-13, just in case you're wondering. At the end of this chapter, it says all of these people who've obtained good testimonies, guess what? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, all these guys, they weren't made perfect apart from us. God's got a good thing for us too, that we might enter in to the hall of faith. It's not about what it does for you. I've been a part of a core group before. I've been about, and it's just, I'm just not feeling it. I just don't, it's just not doing it for me. Hey, it's doing it for you. How do we know it's doing it for you? Because we're being obedient to the word of God. And that's what matters. Don't leave it up to evaluation on your part. You might say, Rory, show me in the Bible where it says I have to go to a 242 group, be in a core group, be in the school of ministry. Hey, the biblical principles are there. And the Bible says that he's appointed overseers and pastors to oversee this church and to make this happen. And as we've been praying and as we've been in discussion, God has been leading us in this direction. How can we best do these things? How can we best do these things? And God has led us with these four main important gatherings of the week. We're going to have the worship team come back up, and I want to close with Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. It's great to read of him, of course, testing everything he says with Scripture. But you know what? To follow a guy who laid down his life to be disciples and make disciples and met the hangman's noose for it, it fosters a certain level of respect and sobriety as you read it. He says, if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy Discipleship means joy. May God grant us joy as we strive earnestly to follow the way of discipleship. Why don't we set our things aside? Lord God, this is uh, tough to hear. The rich young ruler went away sad. Lord, you were always saying things that challenged your followers. When you said to the multitude, hey, if you want to follow me, 
you got to drink my blood and eat my body. And everyone turned around and left him. And Lord, we see that you didn't sugarcoat things. You didn't beg people to follow you. You called them and they either followed you or they didn't. And Lord, as you call today in these scriptures that we've read, Lord, I just would ask that you would just move on these people's hearts that you brought in here for such a time as this to hear a call to be a disciple, Lord, that you would move in their life to immediately drop their nets and follow you. Lord, that they would hear what you're ministering to their heart for them, things that they need to sell, things that they need to perhaps get rid of, someone they perhaps need to break up with, somewhere they maybe need to move. Lord, I don't know, you know, God. And may they just know that that's you and you're gentle and you're loving when you call. But Lord, we do pray that you would do combat today against this cheap grace and against easy believism. Lord, being a disciple, just saying it is hard. It will cost us our life. Lord, pour your Holy Spirit out on us. Lord, that we might be these disciples and that we might make these disciples. Lord, where there's just been just hard stuff to hear today, Lord, and oh, it's just, all it is is just being slaughtered and dying. Well, no, Lord, we know there is hope in that. Those that die to self, those that embrace the feet of Jesus, those that just rest in you and relish you and just want more and more of you, Lord. That want to be disciples, there's hope, there's inheritance, there's joy, there's paradise waiting. We pray that it would just be seen that we have justified individuals here at Calvary Chapel. That their works would attest to that, would be evidence of that. Pray that today it would just be a work of your spirit, Lord. Nothing that Rory would try to get blue in the face and demand or call out, Lord. Just something your spirit does here. Just call men and women to home groups. Call men and women to core groups. Call men and women to be equipped. Call men and women to be a faithful part of the the corporate gathering of their church. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.